bring her love to you. Uh, We're very thankful for how God's at work here at Calvary, and I appreciate the ministry of Pastor Andrew. I know that you're going through a time of change and transition, and Faith and I have been praying for you, praying for the church as you go through this time. God has always led and cared for and provided for his church, and specifically for you, here at Calvary. And uh, he has done that before, and he is doing that now. He is caring for you, and I know that he will provide for you and lead you in the days ahead as well. Calvary is a very special church. I think you know that. I'm pretty sure that most of you feel that. But I say that to you coming from some a little bit broader experience right now as uh, we are in a lot of churches these days. And I've been in a number of churches over the past few years. And some are, some are doing well. Uh, some are barely making it. Some are struggling. Churches are dying. Uh, but thank the Lord many churches are thriving. And I just want to tell you that God has blessed you. You have, by the grace of God, rich Resources. God has endowed you with the spiritual resources, the material resources, the personal resources to grow and to thrive in the way that he wants you to. And I just want to encourage you in that today. In fact, my goal today is to encourage you. And as I communicated with Pastor Matthew about the time I would be here with you and look to God's word with you, um, we just uh, uh, felt like the best thing to do would be to encourage you, and that's what I want, and that's what I want to do from from God's Word here today, and to strengthen your confidence in what God is doing in and through Calvary. The title of my message is Together for God. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. Whenever I think about the church and and the health and life and growth of, of the church of Jesus Christ, my mind often goes to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. In fact, a few months ago, I was reading and studying and meditating in the book of Ephesians and especially chapter 2 and, and some features and, and thoughts in Ephesians 2 started to just blossom in front of me and as I, uh, when I became aware that I'd be spending this time with you and preaching to you, I thought, I want to share that. I want to preach that and bring that to you as a source of encouragement as well. So, Would you please join me in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians contains essential elements in a healthy growing church. A major theme in the book of Ephesians is unity among God's people. And Paul declared this wonderful truth in Ephesians chapter 2 of our union with Christ as individual believers as we are united with Christ and then how that results in unity with other believers. Now, throughout the book of Ephesians, especially when you get into chapter 4, another theme is the growth of the church. We would say that unity is essential to a healthy church. I think you'd agree with that this morning. But also, growth is inevitable in a healthy church. Times of transition, like you are in right now, are tests. Just like you and I as individual Christians go through trials and God uses those trials to grow us, the same is true of a church. Churches go through seasons of challenge and difficulty and trial. 
And God uses those seasons to shape and to grow the church into what he wants you to be. So times of transition are are tests of unity. And there can be an unsettledness that comes with change. Even on an individual level, our, our emotions can run strong. Uh, we can individually have personal ideas and even agendas about how we think things should go and how they should be. And certainly we know that Satan wants to get an advantage and he certainly leverages times when we are vulnerable to do that. But we see here in in the text of Scripture we're going to look at, Ephesians chapter 2, that there are some truths that you can anchor to. And I want to point you to them. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me read for us. In fact, I'm going to do this. Let's start in Ephesians chapter 2. I would like you to hear the flow of thought, and then we'll get into the text we're going to talk about today. So look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that at one time you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, And peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I want to make a distinction here in our thinking as we look at this text. There are some passages of Scripture or statements in Scripture that tell us what we should do. They're instructive. They are imperative. They, they tell us how to think or believe, what to believe, or, or how to act in a certain way. But there are other, other statements in Scripture or truths in Scripture that are simply a declaration. They just say, this is what's true. This is what is real. And that is what we find in, in the last four verses of Ephesians Chapter 2, down in verses 19, 20, 21, and 22. We find statements of truth, statements of reality. They are not imperatives. They are what are grammatically called indicatives. They're just saying, this is how it is. This is what is real. This is what is true. And you see them. You see in verse 19, you are no longer, but you are fellow citizens. And and you see again in verse 22, you are being built together. Those are statements of what is real and true. And they are statements of what is real and true of you. So I hope today that you will see these realities and that you will be able individually and as a church to anchor to them. And to be able to affirm with, with what Paul says here, this is true of us. This is true of our church. I hope that as you see these reassuring truths, they will strengthen your unity and they will encourage you in what God is doing right now in your church. The first reassuring truth is that you are a unified people. In verse 19, he says, so then, and that is reaching back to what he just laid out in describing our union with Christ and what that does for us. And so we would say that you're a unified people and that unity is based on your union with Jesus Christ by grace through faith. In fact, you see two words there, right? So then. He doesn't just say therefore or now. He uses two conjunctives to 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 show the importance of the link to what he just said and to highlight the significance of what he's about to say. He's saying, what I said is extremely important and what I'm about to say is a very important conclusion based on what I've just said. And what we read back in verses 4 and 5 and 6 talk about our personal salvation. But then we read how that that results in in non-Jews, the Gentiles being united together with the Jewish people, God's chosen people, who were under the favor of God, received special blessings from God, and, and combining those two into what he calls in verse 15, one new man. And that's not talking about an individual new person, that's talking about the body of Christ. 
It's talking about this new entity that was brand new, the combination, the union of Jew and Gentile into what we know of as the church. And everyone in this one new man has equal status before God and equal access to God. That's the one new man. So all kinds of people are brought together and joined together in the church when they believe in Jesus Christ and are saved by faith. All kinds of different people are brought together in Jesus. People who were divided from each other. In fact, there was hostility between the Jews and Gentiles are united in Jesus Christ. And you know that the same is true right here, don't you? That there are many different kinds of people, many different backgrounds, many different mindsets and personalities and experiences. And maybe in some cases, whether it was you individually or, or maybe a group of people that you belong to or even an ethnicity where there may have been a great division, even hostility between individuals or groups. You are combined, you are united in this one group in Jesus Christ because of your faith in him. And Paul also highlights that you are unified in contrast to what you were prior to your saving encounter with Jesus Christ. He says in verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens. And he's, he's using terminology that was readily understandable in the Greek world. When there were people who were citizens of the Roman Empire or a certain a certain city, and they had special privileges and, and rights as a result of that. Language familiar to us might be tourists. So he says, not like tourists, not like resident aliens who are in the country, but they do not have all the rights that a citizen does. And he's saying, before you came to Christ, you did not have God's favor. You did not enjoy the blessings promised to his chosen people. You did not have access to God. Instead of being under God's rule, you were under your own authority. Instead of going his way, you were going your way. And, and what he does here now is, is state the negative, and then he is moving toward the positive, saying that you are unified because you belong to this very special group of people, the people of God. He says, but you are fellow citizens, in verse 19, with the saints. Rather than being foreigners with no rights or privileges, you belong. In fact, you're not only a citizen, he says you're a citizen with the saints, with all these other people who've been saved by grace through faith. And you are unified by possessing the same rights and the same relationships belonging to all the people of God. You share in this, you have this in common. Christ unifies the blessings, the privileges, the rights, the access you have to God together, unifies you. And that's a sweet privilege, isn't it? Something we can forget about and easily lose sight of and, and take for granted. Some of you might have traveled out of country with a, a group, a tour group, or some of you have gone on mission trips. Um, the year that we left here, actually, the beginning of that year in 2016, a group of us traveled to Israel together. Some of you remember that. And it's interesting when, when you're with a group of people like that and and you're away from home and, and out of what's familiar and even some of the, 
some of the privileges and rights that you enjoy as a citizen of your home country, wherever you are might be exciting or you're very engaged in the the work that you're doing or the sights that you're seeing and even the people that you're with. But somewhere along the way, you might start to remember what some of the privileges and blessings were from, from back home. And you begin to talk about those and discuss those and say, oh yeah, and maybe appreciate them together. Now we don't live in a foreign country, we do live in Iowa. Seems like a foreign country. It's way on the other side of the Mississippi River, way out there, and you look at a map, it's kind of like big, you know, open, uh, you know, kind of nothingness, kind of a big, big blob out there of, of Midwestern country, corn and beans, beans and corn and all that. There's some pretty places too. But you know what they don't have in Iowa? Whenever we come to this area, and I still cannot get my wife to go with me to Waffle House. I have, there, is, there was the perfect location, there was the perfect site, right where Interstate 80 goes across the north side of Des Moines. At our exit, there was this, this open lot, and obviously somebody was going to build something there one day. I sent a message to Waffle House. I said, this is the perfect spot for a Waffle House. There must be a, a line. I'm not sure what it is. They don't go north or something of a certain, certain latitude. And uh, so, so far we have not been able to get one. So I dream about going to Waffle House. I talk about going to Waffle House. My wife hears me talk about it too much. And then we, we get here and that's one of the things I do when I'm, when I'm here is go to Waffle House because I enjoy it. And some of you do too. It's kind of one of those dividing lines, right? You either do or you don't, right? Waffle House or not. But there's no group of people up there where I am to talk about it and look forward to it and get excited about it uh, because it's kind of a foreign concept to them. You know, when, when you're away and there's something that, that you love and appreciate and is familiar to you, you think, and if you're with a group of people that, that are familiar with that as well, you talk and you enjoy and you share in what you remember or what you know and even what you anticipate, don't you? Well, that's what Paul is describing here is that, that we are fellow citizens with each other, with the believers in Christ. And there are rights and privileges and blessings and joys that we have that really nobody else understands or has access to. In fact, Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And you, believers in Christ, members of this church, all share in the blessings of the people of God whose home is in heaven. But Paul takes it to another level, doesn't he? Look in verse 19. Fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Do you hear the prog progression? He's gone from foreigners and aliens now to citizens, but then... Family members. You are members together of the household of God. G going from being an alien to being a citizen is a significant change in status. But going from a citizen to a family member, that's huge. That's personal, isn't it? And God is no longer just a supreme deity to you. He is your father. And other Christians are not just members of the same organization or same denomination, but brothers and sisters in Christ. 
In fact, in a, in a church setting like this, there are, there are brothers and sisters, but there are also spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers who may have led you to Christ or discipled you or mentored you in some way. You have spiritual children, and in that sense, you are a family. And although there are many differences represented by the people, you have this in common. You are one family. In the seven years since we've been here, uh, it's a blessing to, to be back and to see people we know and enjoy that renewed fellowship and friendship. But I know there are a good number of you who have begun attending and become members and part of the church here at Calvary since then. And we don't necessarily know you. You know each other probably. But you know from the, the charter members all the way to the newest member of this church, you are a family, aren't you? You are a family. There are people who have moved here from different parts of the United States. There are probably people here who have immigrated from other countries. There are various ethnicities. There are children and teens and adults. And you are a family. That unifies you. There's another factor contributing to your unity. You are unified because of the foundation on which the church rests. And we see this in verse 20 where Paul says, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And we're going to talk about a little bit of Greek grammar here because it helps us understand really the, the significance of what Paul is emphasizing for us. Built on the foundation could be literally translated already having been built on the foundation. In other words, it's already finished. The foundation is already complete. It's like when you drive past a construction site and, and a house is being built or a commercial building is being erected. And you see that the concrete footers have already been poured. And maybe there are some cinder blocks in place in, in various sections. And possibly there is some uh, wood or steel framing that's going up. But the foundation is still visible. They're already working on the structure. And you would say, well, the foundation's done. And that's what Paul's saying here. There's no more laying of the foundation of the church because it is already complete. Now, there's something else about this word built. It is not an active verb. It is a passive verb, meaning we are not the ones performing the action, right? Being built is the idea. So God is the one doing the building. He is the one who has already put the foundation in place. And that, my friends, is very reassuring, isn't it? You don't have to go back and lay the foundation for the church or for this church. The foundation is already laid. And in a time of uncertainty, when you're looking ahead and wondering what's going to happen, that is very reassuring. And he, he names what these foundations are. He says the apostles. Those are the direct representatives of Jesus Christ who articulated the gospel. And they articulated the doctrines of Christianity. They heard Christ. The Holy Spirit guided them into all truth. And they laid that foundation of truth of the gospel and the doctrines down for the church. And they recorded them in the scriptures, didn't they? 
And they planted the very first churches that met to worship Jesus Christ and encourage one another in following him. And then there were the prophets, he said. I don't think he's talking here about Old Testament prophets that we normally think of. He's talking about people who delivered revelation from God to the newly formed church before the written scriptures were complete. He's talking about those prophets. You read in, in the passages that describe the gifts God gave to the New Testament church of those who had the gift of prophecy. It seems there were certain individuals that God used to deliver his truth, to give his revelation to the new church, the fledgling church at that time, before the word of God was complete, the written word of God. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 11, again, he lists the, the apostles and the prophets and then the evangelists and the pastors and teachers, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, Paul says, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets. So, so these apostles and prophets had a foundational role in the startup of the New Testament church. But I don't think it was the individuals that Paul's highlighting here. Not just the people. Because that's not what remains as a foundation, is it? What remains is their work. The foundation they laid of the truth of the gospel and the word of God. The same truths that you have as a foundation for your church. And you've identified them and you have, you have recorded them. And you can refer back to them in your statement of faith, right? Yes, we have the scriptures, the word of God, but you have summarized them as foundations for your church in your statement of faith. And that unifies you. Now, there's one more very important, all important element of the foundation where Paul says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And this is a statement that should cause us to just pause and step back and just wonder at the beauty and the imagery and the majesty of the way the scriptures describe our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament uses this cornerstone image of the Messiah. In addition to Paul, Peter also quoted from the Old Testament references and included them in his epistle. So we have Peter and Paul identifying Christ as the cornerstone. In ancient construction, this critical piece was shaped very carefully and set in place with extreme precision. And the rest of the foundation and the entire structure was aligned with the cornerstone. And you engineers and builders will appreciate this. The cornerstone was what ensured that the rest of the structure would be straight and level and plumb. So the finished building would be sound. And Paul was saying that every element of the church must align with who Jesus truly is. Every element of the church must accurately represent what Jesus said and did. And the church needs to be evaluated and measured 
and when necessary, corrected according to the perfect standard provided by Jesus. Jesus keeps the church straight, and Jesus keeps the church strong. Much of what we would probably call nominal Christianity, people who call themselves Christians or are in religion in some way with a a name of Christianity on them, and certainly the, the godless world around us make themselves the standard. Make their ideas and their views and their desires the standard. And if they acknowledge Jesus at all, they remake him. They reshape him and, and, and chisel and carve him to fit their ideas and practices rather than adjusting their thinking and lifestyle to align with him. But the indispensable essential element of the genuine Christian church is faithfulness to the person and the work and the word and the will of the one true Son of God identified for us in the written scriptures. Faithfulness to him as the Son of God who is God the Son who left glory to inhabit his own creation as a man who gave his life as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, who rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and is at the right hand of the Father today, and who will one day come in glory to take his people home and will reign forever. That Jesus. And your commitment to these foundations should be contained within the statement of faith, but certainly it should should permeate and diffuse through every element of the church, right? Definitely the preaching of the Word of God. Occasionally, Faith and I will pull up a video of your services here and listen and watch, and I'll tell you, again, God has blessed you. And even in this time of transition, you have a team of pastors who faithfully bring you God's word, who faithfully present to you the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. And, and that flows out into the, the teaching in the classrooms and, and discipleship that happens with, with new believers or, or younger people or anyone growing in their walk with Christ. It's not just here's some instructions for how to live your life, but if you're discipling someone You're helping them know what it means to follow Jesus, right? To live their lives in a way that's loyal to Jesus. That that demonstrates the character and attitudes of Jesus Christ. And sometimes the hard decisions that come with that. Counseling is centered in Jesus Christ. I teach a class called Pastoral Counseling. And in that class, we spend several class periods... Together in Romans chapter 6, where I show them how it is your union with Christ, like Paul talks about here in Ephesians 2, your individual union with Christ that is the key to progressive sanctification, and that includes overcoming struggles with sin, which is often what we're dealing with in counseling, right? So counseling, again, is not just here's how to change or here's how to overcome that problem, but how do you live out who you are in Christ? 
And the same applies to every area like the programs of the church, how you engage with cultural issues of the day. The word of God and the gospel and the person and work of Jesus Christ are the foundations that unify you and your church as you rest on them and continue to be built on them. And by the way, remember, this is, this is ongoing. He is doing a work of building. And so this continues on even through the ups and downs of church life. You are being built on these foundations. So, so because you, individually and collectively, are joined to Jesus Christ by grace through faith, and because you belong to the people of God, and because your church rests on these foundations that unifies you. It's a statement of fact. Now, now the, the instructions and the imperatives come later, especially in chapter 4 and 5 and 6. He says, now, because of all this, that's where he says, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, right? And tells us how to do that. But here he's saying, you are unified. So you can look around you and you can sit together and you can have conversations and you can hold meetings and you can agree on this truth and anchor to this truth that you are a unified people. Now look with me at verses 21 and 22. And, and if you look at them, and I'm not sure what, what it looks like in, in your Bible, in your copy of the scriptures, but the way it's laid out in this Bible, you can see kind of a parallelism there at the beginning of verse 21, in whom... And then verse 22, in him. And then verse 21, the whole structure being joined together. Verse 22, you also being built together. And the verse 21 grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And the verse 22, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Can you see how they echo? There's an echo there. There's a similarity there. And he's driving a point home. And again, you hear the you are, right? You are. He's making a statement. But you also see that, that he's, he's pointing them in a direction. He says at the end of verse 21, into a holy temple in the Lord. That's where you're going. The end of verse 22, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So he's telling them what God is aiming for, what God is accomplishing through them. We might use the word purpose and say from this text, not only are you a unified people, but you have a unifying purpose. The purpose of the church, according to this text, is to be, Paul says, a temple. And then he defines that in verse 22. A dwelling place for God. Let's understand what Paul was saying. The Ephesians were naturally familiar with the temple of the goddess Artemis that was in their city. It was the, the, the goddess Artemis or Diana to the Romans. This temple was one of the seven wonders of the world at that time. It was a major tourist attraction. It was the largest building in the Greek realm. So when, when these people heard temple, that's immediately what would have come, come to their minds if they were not Jewish. Of course, if they were Jewish, they probably would have thought of that, but, but they naturally would also have thought of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And Paul was using their familiarity with these significant religious sites to help them understand the purpose of the church. 
Another fact that will help us is in verse 21, the word that's translated temple is not referring to the temple compound or just the building in general. It's a word that refers to the, the sacred center or what the Jewish, Jewish people call the holy of holies. So it is the place where God revealed himself. It was the place where God, as far as their experience went, resided and where they met with him. And now you begin to to sense the the significance of the imagery that Paul's using here. He's not talking about the church building, is he? He's talking about the people and the fact that when you gather as a church, you together corporately are a group of people where God is identifying himself to you, revealing himself to you, and making himself known to you. But I think we would also add to that making himself known through you. If you're the temple... He's making himself known to you and through you. So so your, your unifying purpose is to be a group of people who together know God. If he's revealing himself through his word, as you gather, then you gather to know him, but then also to make him known. Now, there are certainly some implications here of what we should do, right? But remember, for now, these are indicatives. You are. Just let that wash over you. Let that sink in. Appreciate it. Rest in that truth. This is not something you have to work up or manufacture or figure out how to do. You are the dwelling place of God. You are a group of people where God is revealing himself to you, making himself known, and you are showing and sharing him with others as well. Of course, we know it's not the building, right? God has blessed you with a beautiful, spectacular, wonderfully functional facility. But the building doesn't know God and make him known, does it? It is you, the people of God. So how can we be certain this will come to pass? First of all, because it is a God-driven purpose. We see in verse 21, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, being built together. Again, these are passive verbs indicating that God is at work in your church right now, connecting people together and moving you forward together so that together you will know him and make him known. I remember anniversary Sundays here at Calvary and often Pastor Guy Altizer would speak for us and uh, share the word but also share stories of how God led and provided and brought resources and property and people to the church here over the years to accomplish God's purpose. And we rejoice in that, don't we? And God has continued blessing and providing and leading. And God, my friends, is doing that right now. He is doing that. This is an ongoing work. And when we wonder, when we question, when we wonder what God's doing or or what he's not doing, you can know he's doing this. 
He is building you up. God is the one who is driving this. It is also a Christ-centered purpose. And in these, in these verses, the phrase, in whom, in verse 21, in the Lord, both refer to Christ. Verse 22, in him refers to Christ. Christ is the cornerstone. So this is a Christ-centered purpose. And we can know this purpose will be fulfilled because it is a spirit-facilitated purpose. We see this at the very end of verse 21 where he says that, that you're being built together into this dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who is making this happen. The Holy Spirit is actively involved not just with individual believers, but with the church. I used to read this verse and, and just try to think about and understand and appreciate what this meant, especially as a pastor. What does it mean that the, the Spirit is inhabiting the church in some way? Well, just like God in the person of the Spirit indwells you, as we come together, a gathering of individuals, each indwelt by the Holy Spirit, God dwells in you personally, but also God dwells in us corporately by the same Spirit. And just like he guided the apostles and used them, he is still present. He is still active, empowering gifts, interceding our prayers, connecting us in relationships, generating worship, drawing people who are far from God to believe and be saved and added to the church. He has not left you. He is still active and engaged here. It is a spirit-facilitated purpose. The truth that God is making himself known to and through the church unifies you. It gives purpose to every gathering, every activity, every meeting, every ministry endeavor. And in case you didn't notice, the scriptures here include the role of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity are actively engaged. God is at work moving you forward to fulfill your purpose of being a group of people who together know God and make him known. I would like to encourage you to think about some ways to respond to this. One is with an attitude of submission. We tend to think of church individualistically. Does it fit my idea of what a church should be? Does the church minister to my needs? Does it fit my preferences? Unity certainly does not eliminate individuality, but it does necessitate an attitude of submission, doesn't it? We submit ourselves and our ideas and our preferences and, and our, our agenda to God's direction, don't we? And we're not just thinking of ourselves. We're thinking of others and, and what God is doing in the lives of others and what is best for the whole church. So cultivate an attitude of submission. And if necessary, if there's someone where there is an unresolved conflict, an offense, or maybe bitterness, resolve that God's way. Seek or give forgiveness because we are unified and so we need to act and live in unity, don't we? And then just move forward with a renewed commitment to these foundations. 
I just urge you to beware of the lure of pragmatism, doing whatever works, innovation and novelty, looking for something new. That could shift you off of the foundations of the Word of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ. I encourage you to be patient. I know your pastors have, have urged you to just be patient with the process. And, and it's a process of not just searching for a person, but it is a process of, of God continuing to build. He's building you together now. He's growing you right now. So stay in that process in your heart and mind while he shapes and refines and strengthens you. And then I encourage you to cultivate trust. And it is a trust that will dissolve anxiety. It's natural to be apprehensive, natural even at times to be afraid of the unknown. But you can trust the God who is building your church, right? So God has you. He is with you. He is for you. And this says that you are a unified people and you have a unified purpose. So you can move forward together for God. Father, thank you for how your word shapes our thinking and changes our hearts. And I pray that it would do what you intend in this body, this treasure of a group of people, these dear friends. We know you are here, you are actively engaged, you are present and at work. And I pray that your people may trust you and follow you in what you're doing. In Jesus' name.